Let's take our Bibles again this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. And we'll continue on this subject of the complete armor of God. I'll read verses 10 through 15. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, let's once again look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the ministry of the word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and help us now as we've gathered to hear it. Help me to preach it. We know that one day we will be preaching it and hearing it forever in glory as we have just sung. But help me to preach to your people who are presently still in their bodies and on this earth and still in the battle against the powers of darkness and help every one of us to hear, as we sang as well, hungering and thirsting for that old, old story of Jesus Christ. Hear us and answer, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Last week I made the point regarding the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace that I believe it has two elements or two main aspects to it. The first, and if I had to say which is the foremost, I think I would say this one, it's the gospel's work and the gospel's effects in the Christian and I said, it makes me think this language, the gospel of peace, makes me think of the language of Romans 5, that therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And there's this emphasis on the blessings of the gospel when we think of having the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. So I grouped it in my early messages on the armor with the belt of truth, we are girded with God's truth, the breastplate of righteousness, that as Christians we have the very righteousness of Christ given to us, not our own, but a perfect righteousness, a divine righteousness, and then the helmet of salvation. We have a helmet on our head, in a sense, that marks us as redeemed and therefore grants us the protection of God himself 
as we go through uh, this valley of the shadow of death, through this veil of tears, and through this battle against the powers of darkness. And it made me think of that point when Pastor Carlson made the, um, the observation about Zechariah 3, verse 10, that everyone will have his own vine and his own fig tree. And he said, certainly that's looking forward to the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, and the glory that is ushered in when Christ comes again. But he says that also was prefiguring or foretelling about the day when Christ would come and the gospel would go forth and it would be a blessing that in part we know now. So there's a sense in which God does call us, uh, cause us and enable us as Christians here in the new covenant, though we're in a world with many dangers and toils and snares that we face on a daily basis, we have peace. We are justified through faith in Christ, having heard the gospel. Therefore, we have peace with God. And it's this emphasis here that I think is there in those four um, pieces of armor, including the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have peace with God. Therefore, as we go through the world, we can be like the righteous man, as it says in Proverbs 28, verse 1. The righteous are bold as a lion. And it made me think, I think I used this illustration in the basketball camp. I didn't use it here, but it made me come back to my mind today. I've read about um, Medal of Honor recipients and some of the things that they've said about when they did these incredible things on the field of battle. And it seems like at, in every one of their cases, they said, they said, how could you do such a thing? And the Medal of Honor recipient said, when it came to a certain point, I just thought for sure I was not going to come out of this battle alive. And so I just didn't care what happened. And I went forward and I was able to do what I did. Well, if that isn't a description of the way every Christian should live in this world, I don't know what is. Brethren, because we have the belt of truth to gird us, the breastplate of righteousness to protect us, the helmet of salvation as well, and then the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does it matter that happens to us in this life? We have Christ, and if we have Christ, that means we have glory, whether it be sooner or later. It should give us peace in our hearts and boldness to do everything we need to do. Well, that's re-preaching those messages, but there's that in terms of the shoes, but then there's also, I believe, not just the effects of the gospel within us that strengthen us for our battle, there's also the effects, I think, that this points to when the gospel is spoken by us. I won't review my reasons for arguing both of these. I will give you a couple of texts that lead me to believe, I gave them to you last week, that this second aspect was also in Paul's mind, that when he talked about the gospel of peace, it means that we, as God's people, especially preachers like Pastor Hoffmeyer just said, but also all of us, 
we are to preach the gospel, and that's part of our spiritual warfare that we are in. Paul may well have borrowed the language from Isaiah 52 and verse 7. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll turn back there and read it. It's familiar language, and I think he probably did borrow this language from there. He quotes it in Romans 10, 15 as well about the preaching of the gospel. But it says in Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. There's the word for gospel in the Greek. Who proclaims peace who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The gospel of peace is also the message that is preached, not just believed. And then there was that other text we looked at in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are mighty for pulling down strongholds. And he meant spiritual strongholds, the strongholds of Satan himself. There's that language about war. And if the gospel is not one of those great weapons that Paul is referring to there, I don't know what is. So I pointed out that when we speak the gospel and when we apply the gospel to situations in life, we are doing more than just fending off spiritual powers. Like it says in Ephesians 6, it tells us about our enemies there. Well, we're doing more than just fending off the enemies of the devil and the demons. I gave three other effects of using the gospel. One of them was our using of the gospel as a sword, in a sense, can be redemptive. Our first and foremost enemies are the powers of darkness, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, yes. But in their case, the gospel can never win them. Our goal is not to fix the powers of darkness. They're unredeemable. They're unfixable, if you will. We will never win them. But we can win people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, he said he became all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. And we should have that in our minds as we think of this spiritual battle as well. Some people that are around us, when it comes to there being means in Satan's hands to tempt us, to entice us to sin, there's a sense in which they're nothing more than the minions of the devil. Jesus said to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. But unlike the devil, they are redeemable. And however unredeemable they may seem to us, you never know what the word of God might do when it's spoken in their ears. Or think of the statement in Colossians 1.13, where Paul spoke about men being delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of God. That's warfare language, where someone is taken from someone's kingdom and brought into the kingdom of another. So one of the effects of using the gospel is it's redemptive. Another effect I mentioned is that it can have a condemning, and convicting effect on sinners. It might not save them. In fact, most of the people who hear the gospel in this age, it doesn't save. Trust that's not news to you. It doesn't save them. 
They hear the gospel, they go away unhappy with what they hear. They might outright reject it, they might pretend to accept it, but they've deceived themselves. They won't always believe. Let's look at a passage that we looked at last week, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 17. I do this because it's a point that I, I want to um, um, use as for some of the things I'm going to be saying today. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 to 17. Here the Apostle Paul wrote, For we, that is the Apostle and his fellow apostolic laborers, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So some people hear what we say, they love it. Well, when they believe it, our preaching makes us, the preachers, the aroma of Christ in God's nostrils. But some people don't hear it. Well, Paul says that we are the, the aroma of Christ in God's nostrils, not only when people hear the gospel and believe it, but also when they hear it and don't believe it, among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death to death. That's those who are perishing. And to the other, the aroma of life to life. But he's saying it's still the aroma of Christ to God. He's pleased with the preacher if he's preaching the word faithfully, whether people believe or not. And who, he says, is sufficient for these things. For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God or making merchandise of it, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. God does not demand, he does not demand conversions of his preachers. If that were the case, who, there were so many preachers in this world would say, who, how can I go on? He doesn't demand that. Think of Isaiah. He told Isaiah that before his ministry even started, by the way, basically nobody is going to listen to you. No one will believe. Who has believed our report? Said Isaiah. What does God require of stewards? The next chapter, uh, chapter 4 in, Corinth in Corinthians starts out that God requires one thing of stewards, and that is faithfulness. Just faithfulness. It's not the next, it's, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 4. But that's the point. But he's saying, if we're faithful in our preaching, we are the aroma of Christ to God the Father in heaven. Even if some people are being hardened by the word. To the one, they're perishing. But the point is, as I, as I well, I'll, I'll say this in a moment. Let me just go on to the third thing that the gospel, the effect that the gospel can have. It can also, when we speak it, and even when we live it in front of people, brethren, it can also have a preserving effect on sinners and on the world. I quoted Matthew 5.13, that you are the salt of the earth, Jesus said to his disciples. You're the salt of the earth. One of the main purposes of salt in the first century was that, like with meat, and other kinds of food, but especially meat, it would preserve it, at least for a little bit longer, not like 
the way we can with freezing and things like that. But they used what they had, and it would preserve meat. It would keep it from spoiling. Well, the presence of the gospel, just like salt with meat, can have that effect of conserving elements of common grace, if I could put it that way, in this world, in a society, and have the effect of slowing moral decay. I mentioned last week, consider that wherever the gospel has had great success in the world, it has affected whole regions, sometimes whole nations for good. And sometimes those effects have lasted not only for decades, but centuries. Most many of you are familiar with the name of Richard Dawkins, the famous British atheist, famous and very evangelistic atheist, very antagonistic atheist toward Christianity. In a book several years ago, he admitted the thought, the thought, he doesn't believe it, but he admitted as he looks at this world and the history of this world, he basically said Christianity is a good thing for the world. He says, I'm glad for the impact it has had. Why? What was his point? He said, the fact that so many people think that God is watching is effective at reducing crime. Or more broadly even, what we would say as Christians, reducing ungodly behavior. And he acknowledged that this has been a great benefit to the world. Well, he thinks it's something with no substance to it that has been a great benefit to the world. A phantom, just an idea in men's minds that he ultimately really wishes weren't there. But the reality is, it's what we're talking about. It's the effects of the gospel, even on those who don't believe it or never come to believe it. And I observed last week then that the gospel, when it is preached to people, and even when it is lived before people or when simply it is spoken in bits and pieces to people, when that happens, it always accomplishes something. Always. That's the point Paul's making there in 2 Corinthians 2. God always leads us in triumph whenever and wherever we preach the gospel and whatever the result is. Whether people believe or don't believe, he is always doing something. The gospel is always accomplishing something, even if it's not what we hope it will be. I'm going to confess to you when I pray on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and other days through the week about this moment when I'm standing here. I almost never pray that God will just harden hearts if I ever do. I pray that God will save people. I pray that God will cause people to hear the word and believe it and take it to their hearts and become more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. Those are my prayers. But I agree with Paul. No matter what happens, if I faithfully preach the word, God always has led me in triumph. I may weep at times that there aren't more converts and converts on a regular basis and we're having to weekly use, or monthly at least, our baptismal tank. I wish we were. But how could someone keep preaching if he felt that success only meant converts? 
Success is first and foremost faithfully preaching the word in a, in a, in a faithful way as well. A brother here mentioned uh, last week to me that this text, you know, this, is, this makes the point, doesn't it? For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. That's an encouragement for us as believers, brethren, not just for me as a preacher, for us as believers. The preached word always does something. We could ask the question, is it ever preached and there are no converts, or at least only very, very few converts? Yes, of course. But let's ask the question a different way. Is it ever preached and God does not accomplish his purposes? No. No way. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 2 at the end in Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11. The preached word always does something. It does specifically what God has ordained it to do. There's an admonition here, I mentioned this last week, to unbelievers sitting under the word. Especially if your mentality is, I went another week and I won. In other words, I held, on, held my ground. I didn't capitulate to this uh, religious nonsense or this religious enthusiasm, to use an old word, there's an admonition, a warning to you. The preached word never does nothing. It's, a, it, it, it's, a, it's the best thing in the world you can do to come into the house of God and hear the gospel preached. There's nothing better in this world that you can do. Nothing else can take you to glory and be the means of bringing you everlasting life and the means of delivering you from the lake of fire, from hell forever. Nothing else can do that than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The dangerous thing is this, if you just sit like a stone under the word, especially if you want to be like a stone, and you're just determined you are not going to believe, you are not helping yourself. You're increasing the hardness of your heart and you are heaping up judgment to yourself. Worse judgment than if you never heard. It's a double-edged sword. So the answer for you is repent of your sins. Believe in the gospel. Don't be an educated fool like Richard Dawkins. And go to your grave when someone was trying to pour out into your mouth the water of life. Open your mouth, drink it, taste and see that the Lord is good, and you will have no regrets whatsoever. God, through the preaching of his word, is welcoming you right now to do just that.
So today I basically have three more things that demonstrate that the gospel is a weapon in our warfare. Let me just underscore something before I go on. And it's this. Paul's aim in, I think his overall aim in this passage about the spiritual warfare, his overall aim is to especially get us to understand that we have been supplied as Christians with very strong, powerful, effective armor for our war. I think that's Paul's main emphasis, no matter which piece of armor he's speaking about. That's what I believe he's doing. And that, and that is true about the gospel. As we consider that as a part of our armor, it is very strong, powerful, and effective. That's a note that in these last two weeks on Zechariah, Pastor Carlson has sounded as well. I can't remember if he had a specific text, but he said, we should realize God has given us everything we need, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And remember, the context was God speaking judgment there against the people in, in Judah as they had returned. Let's remember, brethren, in the midst of our warfare, in the midst of all the difficulties of our Christian life, God has given us this very effective, powerful armor. And so that's why the, the main emphasis on my, in my preaching has been not so much about how to wield armor, but to get us to understand the greatness of this armor that God has given us. I do say some things about wielding it, and I'll... I'll come to that again when I come to the final message, God willing, next week. But let me just give you some texts that demonstrate that the gospel is a weapon in our warfare. I'll do it under three headings. They're not mutually exclusive. They, they overlap. I'll talk about private settings. I'll talk about in the public sphere. And then I'll talk about especially in the preaching of the word of God like this kind of a situation right here. First of all, in private or one-on-one -on -one settings, a couple of texts, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. I'm thinking here especially about the opportunities that God gives us to speak the gospel, whether it's to a family member, an unconverted relative, whether it's to someone in the workplace, whether it's to someone uh, over the backyard fence in your neighborhood. all the people that God has put us in contact with. Part of the reason he puts us in contact with them is for this very purpose. We can speak the gospel to them. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, Paul says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, he says. So this will come up again in, in some things I say, but notice it's, he's talking about this thing that we live our lives. Sometimes, you know, we, we have plans. We may go arm, armed with, a, with a, a book or a tract even and say, next time I talk to so-and-so, based on our last conversation, I'm going to give him this book. I'm going to give him this tract. I'm going to ask him to read it. And I'm going to be ready to try to give him the gospel in a, uh, a systematic way that I haven't had the opportunity yet. Or sometimes it happens like Peter says here, someone just happens to ask you 
How come you're like this? You're not always grousing in the workplace first thing Monday morning because we're back to work. You're not snapping back. You're doing what the boss says, even if it seems like he's being overbearing. What, what is it? And God opens up these wonderful opportunities. So he says we are to always be ready. The preparation, if you will, of the gospel of peace. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. And do it in a godly way as well, with meekness and fear. I'll say something more about that in a few moments. The other passage I have in mind at this point is Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And besides being vigilant in prayer and being thankful in prayer, put this on your docket for your next time of prayer. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he's talking about praying for him in his preaching of the gospel. And then this, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. And now he focuses on this subject of personal evangelism. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, and then like Peter, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Notice the foci, the two focuses there. One, be ready to speak the gospel whenever God opens the door. Number two, be careful how you speak. Let it be with grace, seasoned with salt. So hold on to that point for a moment because I want to give a practical application on that point after I get to this next heading. The second heading is this. That's private one-on-one settings and opportunities. The second one is in the public sphere. As we have opportunity in the public sphere, as we have opportunity, let's look at a couple of passages in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 21, second passage will be in Luke 12, Luke 21, verses 12 to 15. The effects of the gospel preaching the gospel of peace in a public sphere as God gives us opportunity. Luke 21, verses 12 to 15. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you. Jesus is speaking about what's coming for the apostles and for the rest of the Christian church throughout this whole age from the time of his resurrection and ascension until his second coming. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Public sphere. That's my point. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. 
Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. So there's that idea of readiness. You don't know when this might happen. You need to be ready for it. Jesus is saying you don't have to bother to have a seven-point message ready if you ever have to stand before Pilate like I will. That was not his point. God will give it to you in that time. And then chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. So the idea of readiness is there. And the idea of your getting opportunities here in a public sphere, opportunities you wouldn't even ask for, wouldn't think to ask for. Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, so before religious leaders and judges and civil rulers and judges, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. For most of my life, I've thought those kind of texts seem to be almost irrelevant to us here in the West. But now I don't look at it that way. I mean, I'm not saying it never was relevant, but I'm simply saying we don't see on a regular basis. We haven't those kinds of situations. Who knows? God may give me. God may give you situations like that in our lifetime here in the West. In, in the USA, in the 21st century. And when I think of this text, it's hard not to think of reformers like Luther or some of the English reformers. How many testimonies do we have of such saints not only standing in the evil day before popes and bishops, before princes and other magistrates, kings, governors, and not only answering charges that are brought against them, but truly giving testimony to Jesus Christ, their Savior, and preaching the gospel of peace to them. Things, opportunities that they would never have been able to gain if they thought, how could I someday preach the gospel to this leader or that leader? God opened up the door for them. You know what those are accounts, are accounts of? They're accounts of God, by His Spirit, fulfilling these statements of Jesus in Luke 12 and Luke 21. That's what they are. That can happen in different situations, and it can happen in our world, brethren. It can happen in courts of law. Christians are not like they are in some countries, generally getting arrested in our country because there's Christian, because they are Christian. But more and more Christians are facing lawsuits in our country basically just for being Christians. That they have the audacity to not only identify themselves as Christians, but to actually live the way Christ told us to live as Christians. That is happening in our world, whether you're aware of it or not. More and more are facing lawsuits. 
That's one opportunity that God might bring us. You wouldn't ask for that. I wouldn't advise anyone. Unless maybe there's some cases it might be... But but to tempt someone to, to bring a lawsuit against you in a sense. I'm not saying do that. I think of other situations like school boards... I, I know I, I, have, I have a very close, a person very close to me in uh, the Midwest who is a Christian and sits on a school board. And one of the reasons he ran for that office was so he could say something, in a sense, for God in that setting. Or in political policy debates or things like that. Or in opinion pieces, if you have the opportunity to write one. Or letters to editors or things like that, as God gives opportunity. Or on social media, as you have opportunity. I am not advocating that everyone, or anyone in particular, make it his business, because of what I said in the sermon today, to get out there and try to be as active as you can in any one or every one of those ways. I'm not. If such things are done, remember the statements in 1 Peter 3 with meekness and fear, and in Luke 21 and Colossians 4 with wisdom and with grace. And if it makes you nervous what I'm saying, well, your pastor wants us to get out there and be as vocal as... I didn't say that. There's other texts in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4, was it, what is it? I don't know, 10, 11, 12, that we should all aim to live quiet lives in peace and godliness. We should aim for that. But think of these texts. Paul is talking about situations where you might not ask to go there. You might be dragged to go there. And Paul's practice was when he was dragged there he opened his mouth didn't he that's the idea he obviously felt great liberty to do that it would be wonderful wouldn't it if and this did used to happen if the principles of the word of god were used in crafting our civil statutes as they were in much of the Western world. And I'm thankful that the, the, the phenomenon of at least the subjects being brought up has not died out. And we can be thankful to God for that in our world right now. It's tragic that those principles are being abandoned almost wholesale in our day. But I think these are some of the ways in the public sphere that the word of God, the gospel of peace, can have a good effect But before I go on to the third and final thing, I do have a personal pastoral concern. It's a warning that is especially fit for our generation, especially fit for the internet and social media when you think about promoting the gospel. And it's this. We live in a world, brethren, in which... People's speech and behavior, especially in those kinds of settings, has become obnoxious, loud, angry, combative, and caustic. 
There are a whole bunch of other words in the thesaurus I looked at that I could have used but won't. So I want to finish my sermon. And I, I especially mean in our world when I say that, in our part of it. I know it's in the whole world. I especially mean in the United States of America. And I especially mean in the realm of political speech. Not just that, but especially in that realm. And so I have these exhortations for the people of God. We must not forget that the gospel that we want to promote is the gospel of peace. And that means, brethren, that we are to especially be aiming to bring the great truths related to redemption, to salvation in Christ. I'm not saying we, should, saying we shouldn't try to bring the influence of the gospel and the word of God to every area of life. We should. But let's just remember that point. It's the gospel of peace, the gospel of salvation in Christ. Secondly, we need to remember that those truths of the gospel, if we have embraced them from the heart, always make a great impact on our behavior, including our speech and the way we treat others and the way we speak to others, including un believers. And that means that that thing, that, that graciousness in your life, your, the, good, the goodness of God to you as an individual in the way it has changed your life needs to be true even under the pressure of a difficult witnessing situation. It's one thing to say, I wish I could have remembered that text when I was in that conversation. It's another thing to say, I wish I hadn't been so caustic in my speech or repaid reviling for reviling in my speech or lost my temper when I was in that conversation. Brethren, let us be determined not to aim to match the world's speech and behavior just because it has become the norm. Well, everybody talks that way. And, and you can't even hardly be heard if you're not shrill nowadays. So what? Speak like a Christian. Let's not aim to match the world's speech just because people equate that kind of shrillness or harshness with sincerity. That's not a gospel perspective. Or because, well, in this day and age, that's the only thing that works. You can't be heard above the din. Remember, brethren, whether in private or in public, Peter said, do it. Give that answer for the things you believe. Give that answer with meekness and fear. Or in Colossians, with wisdom, with grace, with salt. There's that text in Proverbs 26. Verses 4 and 5, one part of it is, um, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, there's times to speak in the presence of a fool. Another part of it is, don't answer a fool according to his folly, 
lest you be like him. I don't think the point there is. I think part of the point is weigh the setting and who it is that's going to hear you and think about what the likely results are at the moment. But I don't think it's just that you might be unduly disrespected. I think that's part of the point. So as Jesus said in Matthew 7, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. But I think also what might be in view there is this. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Maybe the question is, are you in such a setting that you'll be able to restrain yourself and answer with wisdom and grace and salt? Maybe the idea is, make sure you don't imitate him or her in their ungodly conduct and speech if you think it's above your level of sanctification to get into that conversation at that moment. And another concern, another caveat is this. We need to avoid in our day and age, I'm thinking especially of politics again, here ramping up to an election year. We need to avoid joining or clothing the gospel with politics. Or vice versa, clothing politics with the gospel. I'm thinking of all the talk about the importance of the Constitution. Well, you know, the, the Constitution is pretty important. But even if it's one of the, mo the, the uh, we, someone may make the argument, well, maybe it's the second most important document in the world. It's not anywhere close to the first. Not anywhere close. And talking about our rights. I mean, there's a lot of talk about that. And I know the Declaration of Independence talks about that. And so does the Constitution. We have these God-given rights. But the Bible tells us how to conduct ourselves when God-given rights are removed from us by authorities that God has appointed. I leave it there. Let's remember those things, brethren. So, applications in closing. Just a few things on this point, these first two points. Have all confidence in the gospel, not in yourself. Not in your gifts, not in your abilities, not in your witnessing prowess. Have all confidence in the word of God, in the gospel of peace, in the power of that. We should have confidence when we're in the act of evangelism. Well, that person has never listened to me before. I don't know why they keep letting me say it. Keep saying it! I haven't witnessed many, but I've witnessed people or heard Accurate accounts of people who in their 80s, even 90s, God has saved. Maybe they were hardened over many, many years. And they become like an oak tree that is the biggest and thickest one you've ever seen. But God can still save. 
Have confidence in the gospel of Christ. Second, prepare your sword, like we saw a couple of weeks ago. How do you do that? Bible intake, right? Keep going to the well every day, every single day. That's the idea of when you're called to stand before magistrates or whoever else, you don't need to prepare a special message for them to... Why? Because you're preparing for it every day. Every day. And doing that is not a violation of Luke 12 or Luke 21. Don't worry beforehand about what... I'm not saying worry beforehand what you're going to... I'm just saying keep drinking from the well so that you can pour it out for others. And then third, be constantly ready. It is the, the gospel of... It is the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I'll just drop it there so I can give you this third point and then I'll be done. In corporate worship, I mentioned about the gospel in one-on-one -on -one settings, in the public sphere, now, finally, in, a cor in corporate worship. Paul may have especially had that in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians 12, 15 and following. We're always being led in triumph. We preach the gospel. Some believe, some don't. We're still being led in triumph. Here, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 to 25. 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 25. Paul is speaking here about the use of spiritual gifts. He's especially talking about charismatic gifts in public settings there in the church in Corinth in the first century. But let's look at these words here in verses 23 to 25. And he's given a reason here for the harnessing and scriptural regulation of spiritual gifts in the church. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, in other words, it's just babbling, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your, your mind? Well, if they're not out of theirs, they should, is what Paul is saying. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he's judged by all. In other words, if he just hears the straightforward proclamation of the word of God, this is what will happen. He'll be convinced, he'll be convicted, he'll be judged. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And that's the way we should look at this, brethren. We want people to be saved. What should we think is the best way to that end? It should be this, that they come in to the house of God and the main thing that they, come, that they get is the word of God clearly and simply proclaimed. And there are many, many applications about this. But I'm just going to leave it right there. But just I'll try to give a general statement. All the worry about everything other than that. In other words, you give me a list of 10 to 100 things about 
I think we would get more people into this church if, and then put your list, this should be at the top of that list, and everything short of that, and that is an aid to that happening, by and large, is much ado about nothing. I said it. I don't want to reel it back in. This is the main thing, brethren. There's a text that Pastor Martin used to frequently quote in our um, academy classes on preaching, pastoral theology classes. I don't, I don't say it's Acts 14, verse 1. And I'm not saying there's nothing else worth talking about. We, we as elders talk about a lot of different things. But here's what it says. It says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. This would be Paul and Barnabas. And they so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. And so Pastor Martin would focus on that statement. They so spoke. They so spoke. And I have often reflected, and I mean often, on that word so over the years. And I'm talking three and a half decades now. What was it? What was it? I, I would go to the pa a passage, I won't take the time to read it here, a passage like Acts 18, 24 to 28, and it talks about Apollos coming to Ephesus. And he was a learned man. And he was mighty in the scriptures. And he spoke with fervency the word of the Lord. And I'd say to myself, so was it boldness? Was it eloquence? Was it knowledge? Was it force of logic? Was it passion? Fervency of spirit? Was it zeal? Was it earnestness? Was it exertion? Was it accuracy? I believe that any and all of those things could be included in the answer. But one thing I know is true about their manner of speaking. And I know that it is the thing that truly made the difference. Here I'm going to give you two texts, again for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, and 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Here is the thing that made the difference when Luke reports that Paul and Barnabas so spoke that a great multitude believed. What it was is this. They did not speak in the wisdom of men. This is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4. But they spoke in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that has little, if anything, to do with the volume of the preacher or the action of the preacher. And then 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, where Paul says, Our gospel came to you not in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit. And it reminds us, brethren, 
that though you and I in this battle need to strap on the armor and we need to use it, yes, there needs to be exertion on our part. There is obligation that is laid upon us. We are obligated to do this. Yet it is ultimately God who fights for us and who wins the battle. Like we heard it last week and again this week, not by might, not by power, but but by my spirit, says the Lord. And then the result will be that we will be having shouts of grace, grace. And that then means, brethren, that we need to pray. And that's why I have one message left on the armor. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel. Brethren, let us pray that God will bless our believing of the gospel of peace and that he will bless our proclaiming of it as we take up the whole armor of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would write it upon our hearts. Forgive us the way, for the ways that we have been unbelieving. Forgive us for the ways that we have not been as prayerful as we should. Help us to believe in the great power of these weapons you have given us. Help us in faith to take them up, to strap them on, and to wield them by your grace for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.